and welcome to the Decking Awesome podcast. My name is Kira, and I'm joined by the awesome Brian and Owen. Hello. Hey. Today we are talking about player experience in board games. What is the experience we want to give our players? Can the experience change as we develop our games? How can player experience help us make better games? So let's jump in. Own. what is player experience? Yeah, player experience, it's kind of like a feeling or an emotion we want to give to the players as they play. Kind of like, is it a game with a lot of randomness and a constant engagement? Is it like a frantic kind of game? I think as a player, if you kind of stand in front of your board games and you're kind of in the mood for a certain type of board game, but you're not sure what it is, those are the kind of player experiences that we want to talk about. Yeah. Well, there's not an emotional experience to it. You're not trying to give your player a hug through your board, although that would be cool. Someone write that down. That's a, that's a solid goal game idea right there. But no, it's, it's about, you know, enjoyment. You know, every player wants to enjoy the game. It's like what you're saying, it's what you're in the mood for at the time. So maybe you're in the mood for something heavier. Maybe you're in the mood for something lighter. Maybe, you know, you want something interactive. Maybe you want something you know, fiercely competitive. Uh, maybe you want to go home with less friends. But <laughs> so what are you in the mood for at the time is kind of driven by the player experience of the game. Like designers are all trying to design games that are fun for players. It's just in what way is it fun for the players? You know, are you trying to have it be a quick game? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. Uh, certain board gamers uh, kind of gravitate to certain types of games so, you know, like people who are into war games might not be into like social deception games. And so, you know, do, there is a certain gravity we feel to the fun games that we, we find fun. But I think people kind of move around their emotions and their kind of uh, their moods as well. And so, you know, one day you might love a big, long four hour Euro game set in space where you're building all sorts of empires. And the other game, you just want to throw some dice around. I definitely think that player experience really encompasses everything about the game as well because it kind of spans a lot of stuff and yeah you got to take into account the mood you're in on that day and the feeling you want to compliment do you want to just like burn some hours really in depth into something or do you just want like to blow off some steam and have some light games and fun also, I, I, for some reason, I felt like this is a debate as well. <laughs> I don't know why I started debating, yeah. Brian. <laughs> we're just, we're all on the same page with this one. Yeah, this isn't a debate. Yeah. But like um, games, games aren't designed to be frustrating or saddening or upsetting or anything like that, except Ghost Stories. Ghost Stories was an emotionally traumatizing game. We played that hundreds of times. So it's a testament to the enjoyability of the game. But as soon as it was done, as soon as we beat it once... <laughs> That was it. It was just never playing this game again. It was. Oh, like you spent hours on that game trying to beat it single player as well. No, I think we, the only time I beat it was with Brian. It was just once. I played it lots and lots of times though. Oh, you went to bed. Um, you got too frustrated with it and just went to bed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think I think our, the mentality we go into it isn't just for fun when it comes to player experience. The frustration of it means we are being challenged as well. So we're like mentally challenging games that we might not find fun. And uh, also there's other things like social interaction games, all sorts of different types of things that we really enjoy or get satisfaction from getting better at. But yeah, I think player experiences tell us a lot more about a board game than just mechanics or team. Because player experiences tell us when it comes to like a strategic experience, if, you, if you're trying to make a board game that is a strategic game, it drives forward the kind of development goals of what that game should be. So it's intrinsic to the whole game design process. 
Um, yeah. It's part of the stepping stones that we get that we use to get there. Yeah, so if you want a strategic board game and you have dice in it, I don't think the dice are as powerful an indicator as like where your game should be developed. Because, you know, further down the line, after a lot of playtesting, you might find you get rid of the dice, you know? It's, if you really want to make a strategic game, it's going to be a strategic game right at the end, if that's really what you want to create. But I, like, I do think that's a good point that, you know, player experience is about tailoring the game to what you're trying to make the game. So like if you're trying to design a quick light game like King of Tokyo, where it's just rolling dice and getting in and hitting each other, you don't want a game with a million rules in it and go, this is a quick game you can play in 15 minutes and anyone can get into. And then the rule book is 64 pages long. You know, player experience has to take everything into account. You know, the setup, the ease of learning, the time, the replayability, stuff like that. So, you know, if you're pitching a heavy strategy game like Twilight Imperium or Risk Scythe, any of those, and you're aiming for the kind of hardened gamers, the guys who've played everything, they've been around for years, they like that type of game. It's okay to have it be a bit more complicated. It's okay to have it be a longer game. You're not going to lose people. Like someone isn't going to pick up an enormous box of, you know, Mansions of Madness or something like that and go, this looks like it'd be fun to play with my six-year-old. Yeah, I think think people can, uh, especially board game players can be very, they can figure out what player experience a board game is based on the cover and the components and the team and seeing it being played. They might not be able to verbalize maybe that this is the player experience that they like, but they know Mansions of Madness has like a narrative team, has like a kind of almost cooperative kind of thing. And so, yeah, those kind of effects, those kind of experiences kind of group things together. Yeah, so if all those elements draw you in and tell you what the player experience is like, Brian, what is your favorite player experience? For me, I kind of like the, I like interaction with players. I like the social deception. I like the kind of cooperative teamwork. Games like, you know, Resistance and Secret Hitler, where everyone has kind of hidden roles and you're all accusing each other and everyone's trying to figure out who's who and stuff like that. You know, cooperative games as well. Great fun where you're working with the other players. For me, it's all about player interaction. You know, it's it's great to have a game where you're kind of sitting there and you're deep in thought and you're pondering for ages and ages and ages, but no one's really talking. You know, you're you're all kind of lost in your own game. But I like one where, you know, it nearly forces you to interact with other players. You know, there's, there's lots of groups out there who'll, you know, they'll sit down for a game that says strictly no talking and they'll be chatting away the whole time about nothing to do with the game. But like the games that kind of force you to interact, that force you to get involved, that's, you know, you're accusing each other or you're having a bit of fun or you're working together or you're planning together. I love those kind of games because they bring more players in and they make it more friendly, more interactive, more fun. From my point of view, anyway. Does it matter if, if they're against or with each other? Is it just... It's just to play, once there's player interaction, you're sold. Yeah, I think I think it's just the player interaction. Like, you know, sure, if, if you're against each other or you're playing like a game where it's all V1, which we've done a lengthy podcast on, or anything like that, someone's going to lose the game, but you can still have fun along the way. Like, it's more fun if you're interacting with each other and you're banding back and forth. If it's a game where you're sitting there and not talking at all, you may as well be just sitting playing on your laptop at home. Uh, playing a digital version of it but when you're out playing a board game with your friends you want a you want an interaction you want a bit of banter you want a bit of fun and fun then is kind of what it comes down to the game should be fun yeah it's tricky because uh, i agree that banter is always part of a lot of board games uh, but if you're playing like terra mystica or something like that it's a big long-term strategy game the you're banter not is, having fun <laughs> <laughs> you're having fun but the banter is more about like 
the strategy choices and talking about if your strategy is going to work. It's a lot less where, you know, in social deception games, almost that banter is a skill. And you're kind of using that skill as a, like a, a knife to take out your opponents if in a social deception or if it's a teamwork game, you're using it to kind of complete the game. So yeah, it's, 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 they're really cool concepts. And a lot of people who are new to board games find them really entertaining because they've never heard of stuff like this. So Owen, what is your favorite player experience? I Probably my favorite cre- uh, player experience is probably the creative ones. So things like Dixit, uh, Codenames and Pictionary. They make you have to think in a kind of a lateral different way so that you can kind of figure out the rules based on the situation. So games like Dixit, you have to get inside of whoever's going to guess and try and figure out what they think it might be. Especially with code names, you're trying to give hints that you think your opponent will, will get. And so those kind of ones, there's no real skill. It's not like you can like objectively be better at the game. It's very much a guessing and just trying to be very good at guessing. You know, it's like a probability game, but it requires just thinking outside the box and just come up with your own rules. Very cool. Yeah. And is that a mix of the game mechanics there and the experience, the like creative experience and the the guessing? Like, do they go hand in hand in, in for those games? They're, they're kind of, yeah, they're kind of are hand in hand. Like guessing is part of that kind of skill of the creative kind of mindset. Um, which are which are games that don't really happen in like dice rolling games because in a dice rolling game, say you get six sides to a dice, you know one of those six are going to come up. Whereas in code names, you have no idea what this person is going to say. They could say anything at all, and it's very random, very chaotic. But you know there's a reason behind it because it's a person coming up with these things. I know by kind of doing this talk, we're we're being a little reductive in saying that each player experience boils down to one particular thing. Like it's only social deception or it's only teamwork or it's only cooperative or it's only chaotic or it's only accessible or something. But in reality, most games will have a mix. So like even code names, like you said, it does come down to a bit of teamwork. It comes down to a bit of working together. It comes down to kind of knowing the person you're playing with. But there's also, you know, a bit of chaos, a bit of luck to it, a bit of, you know, trying to give the right clues, a bit of lateral thinking. So you'll never really find a game that just fits one box, but you'll always have games where, you know, you really like the the one element to it. Yeah, that's true, because there's a lot of experiences that are almost the, the side element to a game that people still pick that game. So when you check your board games and you're, and you're trying to come up with a board game night, maybe you like the trader mechanic that comes up. It's never really a strong part of a game, the trading mechanic, it's always like almost a side thing. Like people have to be wary of it a little bit. And so they might pick that game and pick it. Now, now obviously there's games like Werewolf, which are the almost entirely trader mechanics. But some games like, you know, Dead of Winter, you might pick that just for that small bit of the player experience, even though Dead of Winter itself is mostly about like survival. And it's that kind of yeah, like... cooperative uh, game. Yeah, it's a kind yeah. of a cooperative game. So it has a mo- much bigger player experience part of it. But maybe even you absolutely adore one game because it fills all your niches of player experiences that you want. You know, it's just a treasure trove of everything you love. And that's probably why you like those specific games. But there probably is another game out there <laughs> that, has that, <laughs> that kind of fills those as well in different ways. Yeah, I think the, the other games I love, there's chaotic experience games are, are an absolute lovely ones they are mostly dice games but uh, they don't have to be 
you know, it, uh, some games can be chaotic without dice. You know, there's like games like Dice Summoners, obviously our game. Then there's Roll for the Galaxy. And Cult Express is a great one for chaotic experience, which doesn't have any dice. It's, it's a very, you know, interesting one as a chaotic game because it's a programming game where you think it's all very scripted and pre-planned out. But man, it's chaotic as all heck. <laughs> yeah, very friendly. And it, those those games are fantastic because it's about keeping players engaged because in some big long games you can find that you know you're having a go and then other people aren't doing much they're almost taking a break to try and long-term plan whereas in these chaotic games there is no long-term plan it's whatever happens in your go it's very reactive but it also when it's not your go sometimes there's things to get you involved like in settlers of Catan, you might roll a dice and get some sheep and that that way you're you're, you're kind of grabbing it in now obviously we all can say what games are creative and what games are strategic. It depends. But anything that's kind of frantic, that has a lot of constant engagement from players, they're always great fun because people just really enjoy it because you don't have time to not enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Cold Express is actually a really good example of that as well because your thinking time is everyone's thinking time, which is always nice in a game. Instead of having goes, you kind of all, you all start thinking at the same time. And then... The, the frantic element really comes in when you have to be paying attention because if you get shot, your whole go changes. And then you have to like scramble in your brain to, what did I do? I had planned, if I was on that tr- carriage, would I have gone here? Where was I planning to go? And there's, then There's nothing worse, worse in Cult Express than like moving up onto the roof, getting shot by someone who wasn't even aiming at you, moving back down and getting shot by two other people who weren't aiming at you. It was like, <laughs> God, no. <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of the times forced actions are like a bad idea when it comes to games. But in Cold Express, sometimes you are forced to make an action, but it's kind of your own undoing. (laughs) You decided to give yourself a forced action, whereas you could have given yourself an option, like going left or right. You decided to shoot and then like, oh no, I have to shoot this person that I don't want to shoot. Too bad. You have to shoot that person. And that's just fantastic. I love those kind of mechanics because it's just chaos and fun. Definitely. So, Owen, when should player experience be developed? Should it be the first thing we think of when we have a new game idea? Or is it something that evolves as the mechanics and themes are brought in? Yeah, I think it's a gradual process. So when you're developing a board game, you're going to, the original idea might come from a mechanic or a team, or maybe you're adding a flavor to an existing game and you want to flesh it out more. There's always some sort of kind of specific goal you have for a game. And as it develops, you start adding more and more to it. And it becomes like a train. And then you you have this really great game. And then once Cold you... Cold Express. <laughs> <laughs> and it always turns into Cold Express. <laughs> once or twice, it turns into Ticket to Ride. Before the <laughs> always trains. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's fantastic when that happens. But w- it's really difficult to say what the player experience is of your game until you play it and you, you get a feeling for it yourself. And then once you play it a couple of times and you start, you know, fleshing out the rules and you actually show it off to other people, you're going to get a really strong indication from other people playtesting it, what the player experience is. But you should have a good idea as well in your head of of what it is. And even if, you know, you develop a game and it becomes like Cold Express (laughs) and you're like, I don't like chaotic player experiences. I want it to be more of a long-term strategy kind of game. Maybe Ticket to Ride style thing with like cowboys and, and Indians. I think you have to have that in your head that when you're developing it, this is the player experience I want. But it's not something I never start off with the player experience. I always start off with usually the game mechanics. Yeah, you, you know, you want to start a game and just go screw the players. 
this is where I'm going. <laughs> um, no, sorry, I, I do I do completely agree with you. It is a gradual process. It's not going to be something you're going to throw into your first prototype going, oh, I really hope they enjoy this. I hope they really get the feel for this. You know, your first prototype, or your early prototypes are going to probably be cut out bits of paper that you're sliding around an Excel sheet and hoping that people get where you're coming from with vague rules that you're changing as you go. Like, if you throw a complete novice to board games into that situation, they're going to look at this and go, this is a really complicated game. Whereas on the surface of it, it might be a very simple one. So it's it's just complicated because of how it's set up. But, you know, with a bit of experience, with a bit more, a few more prototypes, you know, the player experience develops with the game. Obviously, it should be something you always bear in mind as you're playing. Like, there's nothing worse than going out and playtesting a game a fellow designer has brought to, like, a, a a testing nice. And you play the game, a lot of people give feedback and like, oh, you know, I really like this. I think it'd be more fun if we did this. And the developer just goes, no, that's not what I want to do. I want it to do it my way. And you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's fine. I'm not <laughs> going to enjoy the game as much so, but... Well, this is, this is the thing. Uh, you can take Terra Mystica, which is a great example of a really long-term game. And it has components in there, like advancing up in the religion track or the technology track and stuff like that. And that gives you some big end-game bonuses. But, like, there's obviously a decision made by developers that keep that in. Because the core gameplay is about, like, terraforming this kind of planet. And so... Yeah, as a developer, you have the last say pretty much as to yeah. what, what's going to happen. But the player experience can direct you into where to add that mechanics and add that team or take away bits that you don't like. So, like, you know, if you're interested in developing like a, st- a scary story game and you're realizing you're getting lots of fear and tension, but, you know, the players think it's more of a chaotic, frantic kind of constant engagement game, you might start adding in more narrative elements. And start expanding on that, start adding in more text and more speeches and stuff like that. And that can change how people play your game and change the experience they get out of it. Yeah. And I think it can be quite nuanced as well. So if you think of like an escape room game, there's there's quite a kind of a standard that's a very narrative heavy game. And you have to somewhat be inside those confines. But at the same time, you have the choice of, is a player going to feel like, you know, they're on a fun mission or are they going to be on a like we're escaping a dungeon or there's a murder on the loose sort of uh, mission. If you're in a genre or you're developing in a genre that does have kind of clearly defined player experiences that a player expects, you can still do enough in a game to bring your own element of player experience to it, I think. I think once you, you might be stuck in one of the the overall experiences, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't bring your own element to it. Every game has a different player experience. Yeah, and then the mix is really important as well. Like, you know, especially when you're talking about escape room games, they can get a bit uh, like samey, you know, because why break something that's not broken, you know? And that's not the saying, but it's something like that. And so as, as a developer, when you are looking at that and you're trying to get into that genre of games, it's about trying to find out what you think the players will want, but also what you want from these kind of genres. So if you get into escape room games, you, want, you might want to think about what, do, what am I missing from the current ones? What kind of player experiences do I like? You know, is it this kind of fear and tension that I don't see? Is it this narrative thing? Or maybe it's like a long-term planning thing. I don't know how you'd add long-term planning into <laughs> escape room games. <laughs> Uh, Escape. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you want to mix those experiences in. And if you can do it well, they work really well together. It's like cooking, I suppose. Like, I I, I think 
as as gradual as the process is, by the time you get to adding final artwork or even some artwork to your game, that's the point where player experience needs to nearly be forefront in your mind. Because at that stage of the game, you're you're finishing with your mechanics. You know, there's only tiny tweaks being made. You know, maybe that needs to get one extra point to balance it out a bit, or you know, maybe that needs to be a different color cube or something like that. So you should have the game that you want to have at that stage. So now you should be at the point of going, okay, well, how can I make this the most enjoyable for my players that I can? So, you know, you want the game, as we were saying earlier, you know, it, it, it has taken the whole picture. So you want it to now be accessible. So you want them to look at the board with a nice new artwork and go on it and go, oh yeah, it's very obvious that I need to move from here to here and that I'm ultimately trying to get this. And when I do, I can combine this, this and this to get it because all of it's clear there in the artwork. You don't have to be constantly flipping back to the rule book. The game is just intuitive almost. And, you know, to, to a large extent, you can use the artwork to benefit you in that regard, that you can make the player experience accessible with, you know, the simplicity of the mechanics and the simplicity of the artwork or the intuitiveness of both. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think if you know the player experiences of your board game, it's easier for you to explain the mechanics in the rule books, and it's easier for you to kind of look at the artwork and stuff like that. It gives you a better scope as to where you need to go in the game and where it falls flat. And so, like, if your game is uh, kind of touching on some long-term strategy concepts, you know, have a look at long-term games and see if you can pull any kind of interesting things that are coming out of that player experience in like new games that are coming out. And see if you can take that and put that into your game and make it kind of a whole part. Because if you don't know there's an experience happening that your players love about your game, then you're going to miss it. And you're just not going to explain it in the rules or you're not going to show it off. Yeah. You're not going like, to you know, tell people about it. And then someone's going to buy it and they might like see, oh, this has this weird kind of trader mechanic or something like that. Or yeah. this narrative thing. I wasn't expecting it to be brought on a journey. I just wanted to, you know, build trains. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, I suppose, like the Chekhov's gun of writing, where if you put something in it, it should be used and it should be used well. Like, it's all well and good having, you know, extra little features like trader mechanics or, you know, individual roles or stuff like that. But if it doesn't suit the game, it's just going to kind of confuse the player experience. So, like, you know, if you take a game, I'm going to, I'm going to go as simple as Monopoly in this one. Say you're all playing as Monopoly. There's no point in you going around the board trying to buy properties and build up hotels all the while you've got a little face down card telling you secretly you're Hitler. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, might add a weird element to it, but it, it doesn't add to the player experience. And I think... But it's, that's Dead of Winter, right? <laughs> <laughs> no? I think I'm playing Dead of Winter wrong. <laughs> 400 on Shrewsbury. <laughs> you yeah, might be a bit of a betrayer With zombies. I mean, I mean, like in, in Monopoly, you're you're doing this long-term planning and because that's the mechanic, right? Well, Dead of Winter is kind of more like, oh, we need to work together. Oh, crap, zombies. Oh, crap. That guy might be not on our team. He's helping the zombies for some reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but is that a logical, I think, mechanic? It depends. Am I playing as the top hat or the boot in this situation? <laughs> but you're right, though. In, the, in Monopoly's case, I don't think it's if that was the case, Monopoly is not advertised as a trader game or a social game. You know, there's no deception in it. There's no bluffing. Uh, that's not why people buy Monopoly. So by the sounds of it, player experience is actually acting like a tool in a lot of 
situations. It's a tool to help you develop the game. And it's a tool when you're buying a game or choosing to play a game to help you decide the experience that you want, to lead you towards making sure that the game that you're playing is the game that you wanted to play. So are there any other ways in which it benefits own when developing a board game? Yeah, I think uh, we've touched on a couple of things already. The artwork and design is a great one to have because if you know the player experience and you know it's a teamwork-based game and you know it's a kind of a chaotic game, you know exactly how to have the front of the box. You want to include a group of people together and they're all working together. You kind of want to have it so that there's not as much conflict based on the people or the players and it's more based on the game. And so, yeah, yeah, I would say that's a big, huge one, because without it, you might end up creating artwork and graphic design that signifies a different type of game, which can be bad. Definitely. Brian, do you have any other benefits that you think it might bring to a game development? Yeah, like I think even like the getting the player perspective on it from their experience of the game is hugely beneficial. Like if you're playtesting a game, as as we all know, you're playtesting it over and over and over and over and over and over again. You've played this game so many times, you could do it in your sleep. Like you know what all the ridiculous little symbols mean. You know what everything translates as, you know what means what. But when a player is picking it up for the first time, does it make sense? Is it intuitive? Does it play well? You know, if, if you hand some of the game and the rules and you want to try and figure it out are, are they going to have to ask you six dozen questions because it's just not easy to figure out whereas to you it makes perfect sense because you've played it so many times you know all the ins and outs of it but it's just not easy to figure out and you don't want to hand out a game that's going to take someone you know five or six playthroughs to get the hang of because realistically they're not going to play it a second and third time but like it can help you pick up even fun things you missed as well, you know, forget the intuitiveness of the game. I I know myself, I'm very guilty of balancing a game to within an inch of its life. You know, I've got maths and spreadsheets and formulas for absolutely everything. I can tell you that everything works out exactly right and that you know it's all going to balance, but it is a boring ass way to play a game. (laughs) Like if everything is the same, if everything works out the same, you know, there's no fun. So getting player experience on stuff like that is is really interesting because they can be like, oh, well, you know, I just didn't really enjoy it. There was no kind of risk to it. There was no, you know, oh, I'm definitely beating that guy. It was always just like, oh, we're kind of just always the same. So player experience, I think, works very well in that regard. And how do you get that out of the players? How do you get that information on how they found the game? Or how do you how do you find out what they experienced through the game? Baseball bats. <laughs> I don't know if that's as effective as you might think. <laughs> In the absence of baseball bats, feedback forms. Feedback forms are a good way to do it. I will say that kind of thing works really well with big scale things like conventions and stuff like that, where you've got loads of people coming through a playtesting area. Maybe if you're at a big game testing nice, you know, stuff like that is brilliant. You know, you can just ask them as well. How did you enjoy it? What could improve it? What did you think would make this more fun? What bits did you really enjoy? What bits didn't you enjoy? That kind of stuff to just kind of improve the improve the play of the game. You know, the mechanics can be perfect and they can all work, but if the game isn't fun, there's no point in it. And we do have a bit about playtesting as well in a different podcast because there's a lot of forums out there that try and find that in-depth information on the players, but it can be quite hard. Owen, do you have any other tips? On Brian's point about getting the player feedback forms and actually getting their experience of playing, it can be kind of tricky as well. I wouldn't start asking them questions during the gameplay. 
because they might be a little bit too distracted uh, playing your game and you, you might kind of skew the results a little bit. But even afterwards, when you're when they're filling out the form, they might not fully understand why they don't like certain aspects. So you got to take into account that, you know, these people are at a board game convention or they're in a board game testing thing and they went there to experience a certain type of board game. Like yourself, it might be like a social game or a deception game. And so if you bring in a game that only has that as a very side minor part, they might play that game just on that part alone. And they might start saying things like, I didn't like the part with the where I had to build trains. It's like, well, that's, this game is called Train Builder. <laughs> <laughs> so Train Builder, the social deception. Uh, and we didn't really lure you in with that one. <laughs> so they, it can be kind of really tricky to get people's experience on these things. And they might just end up saying, I didn't like this part or I didn't like that part. And if you know about player experiences and kind of the chaotic fun element of one versus the long-term planning of others, you can see which ones are working well in your game and which ones aren't. Um, and I think, you know, work on averages, but also see the outliers. So if someone had a very weird turn where like a lot of bad things happened to them and it kind of snowballed, those are good w ones to kind of see, is your game still enjoyable in those scenarios? For someone who likes social games, for someone who likes building trains. Uh, yeah, and then the other one is obviously just watching people. It sounds pretty creepy, <laughs> but if you're in a board game convention, just looking and staring at someone, I wouldn't recommend recording them because that's, a level of creepiness that a lot of people can't handle. <laughs> just get right down beside them and eyeball them. Just hard <laughs> stare within six inches. That's yeah, do not do or that. Or subtly so they don't notice and get freaked out by you. Yeah. That's also a good idea. Yeah, You want people to like, follow you on Facebook, not like <laughs> tell the police. Take a restraining order. Yeah. <laughs> if you put on a lab coat and a clip and pick up a clipboard, no one questions you. Yeah. Like So if it's early in the process, you can always just play test with them, with the game. So you can just be a player in the game. And um, yeah, if you see people reacting in certain ways, you can see that like are certain actions kind of redundant. Like if your game is based solely on social deception and then there's an action in there where you have to choose between a, a game where you can deceive people, like, like an action where you can deceive people and another one where you just get like two gold coins. Is that a pointless action that you've given the players? Because if they always keep picking the deception one, maybe this whole gold coin thing needs to be reworked into it. Because if, if they really enjoy one part of the game, make it bigger, make it more powerful. Or if you don't want that part of the game, you know, it, it, as a developer, it's your control. You just need to be aware of it. And that's the key. Yeah. And when it goes wrong, what are the tips for trying to figure that out, trying to figure out where those points are? I think it's tricky. It's, it's really, really tricky. And you, you, you have to kind of play test it a lot of times. I think the players will know themselves a lot of the time. They might know, not know when they start to not like the game but you'll be able to see it visibly in them and also be honest you know so when you're giving the sales pitch to get people to play test your game be honest of what experience they're going to expect so yeah. if it is a social deception game just you know tell them you know we need six people this is going to be a social deception game it's only going to be 40 minutes but expect to lie expect to bluff because if they go in there and they're like, this isn't a train building game at all. <laughs> I always liked that when we were playtesting like dice summoners and you'd have people walk over and go, oh, this game looks really good. And they'd sit down and you'd give them the quick elevator pitch to explain how the game was going to work. And they'd stand back up and go, this is not our type of game. And they're like, well, you know, thanks for telling us because, you know, it's better than you sitting through and going, I just didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Because it's not the type of game they want to play. You know, I find 
when you've play tested a game so many times at conventions at board game nights and stuff like that you just start seeing the players as floating emojis you know are they happy are they sad why is that one angry <laughs> that was just an ice cream <laughs> yeah. i need to update my emoji set. <laughs> i i find that i can overanalyze it completely like i can stare at somebody playing my game and be like so obsessed with how they're reacting and they're like just thinking about something else because it's not their turn and they've just gotten distracted by something else it can be really difficult to like you can also go the other way where staring six six inches from their face means that you're just taking in too much information and you're just missing the point altogether so I I think that it kind of has to be balanced somewhat like I know myself that I'm overly sensitive about it so actually I prefer when somebody else takes the players through the game so I can watch from like a distance and separate myself from the from the whole emotion so I can try and read people that way. There's some amount of knowing yourself as well when trying to when trying to influence, when trying to s- decide the player experience and make sure that it matches what you want. Yeah, because we also have our own player experiences as developers. So if, if we're in a mood to not play a chaotic, frantic game, we would prefer a long-term strategy game, then it's going to be difficult to even playtest your own game. But, you know, most I think most board gamers are up for all types of games. It just depends on when, you know, especially if the if the game has at least one part of your element. But, you know, if you are noticing that, you know, your game is being developed and you start seeing that people keep hammering in on a specific experience that you don't want to be part of it or they're having a lot of fun and you really like that part, it's up to you to decide whether you want to keep developing that game in that way. Because... You know, it's hard to say no when you see like four people having a really good time and they're really enjoying themselves. You're having fun wrong. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Have uh, fun better. <laughs> and so it's it's really hard to go like, is this what I want my game to be? You know, and and you have to kind of decide. But like, you know, it's always, you've always got drafts. You can always come back to it. Yeah. Like so, I, I think that's where the playtesting and the versioning comes in really well, because, you know, if you're playtesting a game, say a game like Pandemic, where you've designed it to be full, everyone cooperating together and working together to complete whatever the objective is, and you find that people are splitting up into smaller teams and they're trying to accomplish little mini objectives by themselves, and maybe they're ignoring the big overall one, why not create a version of the game where maybe that's the point of it? Maybe you have to split up, you have to partner up with one person, you have to go off and tick little boxes before you can do the big one, because maybe that's more enjoyable than you're sitting there and you're waiting for everyone to take their turn and maybe you're chipping in every now and again but maybe if you're you know working with just one person you're going oh you know let's let's do this next time and oh they're going to be coming over here we don't want to get in their way and stuff like that maybe that's what people are enjoying but as you said you know ultimately you have the final say but you want the game to be fun you don't want it just mechanically perfect and really boring Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of interpretation as well yeah some games are like that some you know some games players will just play it their own way regardless they they could even just like disregard the rules as well and homebrew the game so you're never going to get around that but i think because board gamers are so creative and stuff like that you could end up with some crazy ideas on the uh, on convention floors and be like this whole like double team thing is really cool yeah you know we should have this as as an actual mechanic so own do you have any examples where the playtesting has led to changes in player experience? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, in, our, in our games, anyway. So in Dice Summoners, we found the chaotic experiences really fun and engaging. And, you know, as the players were pl- playing, they loved rolling dice. They weren't sure what was going to happen next. 
after they rolled dice, they had this all this kind of strategy to choose from and what to pick. But the the later on in the game, it was a bit like the choices they made earlier didn't really feel like they had a whole lot of meaning. So we added in things to elevate it. Now it's a short game, Dice Summoners, but we want, just wanted that that end game to really finish in a high note where you had a little bit more long-term decision-making of picking like mythic creatures and auras, even like curses because they last a couple of rounds. Those kind of decisions allowed players to hedge their bets a little bit for some bad rounds they might be having. Or if they can see something coming down the road, you know, they can at least do something about it. And so it kind of reduces a little bit of chaos at the end game, but it keeps that freshness at the start. And that's what we wanted. We don't want just people to take out a whole bunch of dice, roll them, and just the chaos begins. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, same question as Owen. In our games, have you got any examples where we've adjusted it for the player experience? Yeah, I feel like, like I was saying before, I'm guilty of balancing to a fault where, you know, mathematically everything will be perfect. Like, in several versions of Bumper Bots, it was just... It was perfect, you know, mathematically, it was perfect. And everyone finished within a couple of points of each other and it was really boring. (laughs) (laughs) No one liked it. But a bit of discussion and a bit of, you know, interacting with the players and going, well, you know, what bits did you enjoy? What bits didn't you enjoy? That kind of thing led us to going down different routes and different options. You know, maybe players want to go for high value points that lend themselves towards end game. Maybe they want to, you know, focus on getting as many bots as possible, which will let them rack up points quicker, but slower. Quicker, but longer. Quicker, but, I'm going to stick with quicker, but slower. You people know what I mean. You people in the podcast world. <laughs> And, you know, there's other options where you can just, you know, blitz through all the small domes where you're getting a little bit of points each time, but they add up. So by kind of taking on board the feedback, we were able to change the game. It it wasn't even fundamentally. We changed essentially the same game, but just presented it differently and gave people different options and routes. So sometimes it depended how quickly people got there and sometimes it depended on how heavily they invested in one route. Sometimes it depended if they diversified. It gave, you know, different options and everyone always felt like theirs was the best. So they were like, oh yeah, I've definitely taken the right choice here. I'm definitely winning. Look at that idiot over there with all his bots. He's got no points at all. Oh my God, where did he get 50 points from? (laughs) (laughs) So I think that worked out well for us uh, or for Bumper Bots. I think that's a great example of, of of how player experience can determine difficult decisions you can make during development because it, that, I think Bumblebots really that issue came came to the fore for me anyway when it came to the end game scoring because the end game scoring was a really balanced way of making sure these different styles of play worked out well in the end. Problem is end game scoring didn't really sit well with the player experience of this chaotic fun with a little bit of long term planning it just ended up becoming maths at the end yeah. which was difficult so taking way that, too much maths <laughs> yeah so it was more effort to put that kind of functionality back into the game instead of the at the end but it really helped the experience and helped drive home what people loved about Bumperbots I found the same with um, my own experience with um, Save Snowball so that's an escape room style game and is definitely every puzzle had to be looked at independently and made sure that it matched the player experience. Like, especially when everyone in the group is focused on the next puzzle, you really have to be careful that each puzzle follows along the team and that none of them make the players try and turn on each other or one-upmanship comes into it where it is really unnecessary. Uh, You want to keep the thing. So I've had to revise, remove and change a lot of the puzzles in the game to try and keep that flow nicely and keep the players engaged at the same time. It's worth it. And 
infinite amounts of playtesting and you can really get to see the the uh, player experience. Yeah, I think I think that is a great example of how we can get focused as developers on specific components that happen in a game because they're really important. Now, like escape room games are a little bit different in the fact that you know, two cards is like a whole puzzle that you can spend a long time on rather than just being like a monster. It's a dinosaur, you know? <laughs> um, it can, you can develop these components and then think in your head, oh, I'll just set them up this way. But until you actually play test it with the players, they might get a total different experience out of it, you know? Like you said, you could have this alpha gamer thing happening, depending on like if someone's really good at maths, they might just keep throwing the maths puzzles at the person and so having that kind of variety and stuff like that it really does focus up on what experience you want even on a game like an escape room game which sounds like it's just a series of harder puzzles well the order matters the type of puzzles do you want to keep showing the same one but getting harder or do you want to just have like unique puzzles the whole way through those choices are really coming from the player experience what do you want the players to feel yeah when they play it? and even like components Escape room games don't have a lot of components, but adding one to my game meant players got completely distracted by the component and then got distracted enough that they didn't enjoy the game if the component wasn't used enough or was used too much. Using the component everywhere, like trying it on every <laughs> little thing to see. If... Yeah, it can take, really take away from the experience as well. We will be doing a deep dive into our favorite player experience in the following podcast. So stay subscribed. That pretty much wraps up for our player experience in board game design. What is your favorite player experience? If you enjoy it, share it. We've been decking awesome games. Thank you for listening. See ya. Bye. Bye.